This is the Doctor Who Podcast, and you are most welcome. Hello listeners and welcome to episode 340 of the Doctor Who podcast. And this time we're going under sea and with me is Brent and Michelle. Hi folks. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> We've got the camper van set for submarine capability. Is that what we're at? <laughs> Absolutely. It's just like in that James Bond movie where it's going to convert into a submarine and go underneath the water. Because oh. we a decidedly <laughs> nautical theme this time. Mm. We're going to be talking a little bit about the upcoming special at Easter, Legend of the Sea Devils and doing a little bit of a look back to the Sea Devils' original uh, appearance. But before we dive into those, uh, guys, anything you want to discuss about the world of Doctor Who? Anything interesting that's been happening? Have we had any major revelations? I mean, I know we had the 1st of April, but... uh... (laughs) Tom Holland is the next Doctor in a complete reboot. (laughs) Right. Which I think was one of my predictions, actually. (laughs) No, that, that, that was an April Fool's gag that went out on the official Doctor Who. I think it was on the Facebook feed. I presume they put it out through all their social media channels, but uh, I thought that was rather amusing. Well, and because it was on the official feed, I was not certain. I was not taken fully in, but I did send it over to James and say, James, is this for real or is this April Fool's? Because it really, I mean, it is. Wasn't it your prediction that they would do a complete reboot and start over again? So why not? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't. It wasn't one of my official predictions. I quickly hastened to add. I, I think I'm used about it when we were discussing flux that that might happen. But I certainly didn't predict Tom Holland, and I have a feeling that might not happen. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I saw the Tom Holland one. I saw the David Tennant one again, and I saw another one that was um, Matt Berry's voice in a trailer. Yeah. Something about I don't even know how you pronounce it. Is it the CBBs? How do you? I'm not sure. CBBS is the kids' channel. On yes, BBC. yes, it came out yeah. of there. Um. <laughs> I didn't see that one. My kids are a bit old for that now. <laughs> so, a couple of something else I've been noticing the last couple of months is there's been quite a bit of activity in the computer game world for Doctor Who. So, back in January, there was an official time between Eve Online and the Daleks, which I suppose Eve of the Daleks and the Daleks, and so for a whole month, players in Eve could fight the Dalek fleet uh, in Eve Online, which was quite impressive and that was an official tie-in and then following that we've had Fortnite of all things has had a Doctor Who presence for the last month or so where there's a whole special game you can play in there and a Doctor Who museum all in the Fortnite game which I was a bit I was a bit surprised at that because Fortnite being you know a battle royale last one standing death match didn't seem like a great match for Doctor Who to me I've never played my, my little niece is into that but I haven't asked mm. her yet has she Got into the Doctor Who thing. So how did they mesh it with the Doctor Who world? Or, or? Well, I, I think, I mean, I've not played it myself, but I think they made it as a separate. What's interesting, actually, is it's not an official tie-in. So they didn't pay Epic, and Epic didn't pay Doctor Who. It's almost like a mod, that they, but it's an official Doctor Who mod made by the Doctor Who team, is my understanding. Ah. Where you can go into this specially crafted world they've created where it jumps in and out of different episodes. So it's it sounds like it's been created by the actual sh- series itself but without a tie-in. 
So it's interesting. I mean, they must have some audience they're going after there to try and get them more into the Doctor Who world. I never would have imagined Fortnite and Doctor Who being a match. I noticed that uh, Demon Records is going to release a 10th Doctor audio adventure called Dead Air on the next Record Store Day, which is the 23rd of April. The press release says, Originally released in 2010, this new vinyl pressing of the story, written by James Goss and narrated by David Tennant, will be across two 140-gram Soundwave green vinyl discs. And they are beautiful. They're like see-through, sea-green colored. So now I just need to get my record player fixed. The sound's not working. <laughs> yeah, I'm in much the same boat. Yeah, I have one. I have Destiny of the Daleks, and they're made very well. Really nice packaging. Well worth the money, I think. Well, Dead Air sounds familiar, and I'm assuming that must have been a big finish It's a big finish. Production. Yeah, it was, I don't know. Well, yeah, it says right here, 2010. 2010. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And being sea green, it's bang on theme for this month. Uh, yeah, I had that right. same thought. Yeah. <laughs> the other one was another uh, big finish release that's coming out in July. They have a new range now called Doctor Who the Audio Novels. And it's sort of like uh, Companion Chronicles or, or uh, Short Trips, but they're like novel length. So they're like seven hours long. Uh, this is a 12th Doctor story with Bill Potts called Emancipation of the Daleks. And it's seven hours long, read by um, Dan Starkey, by Jonathan Morris, has specially composed music, immersive sound effects, and Nicholas Briggs as the Daleks. Are these then new novels written for Big Finish, mm -hmm. or are they, they audio versions of the, the tie-in novels that would have been already released by BBC? They're totally original, written especially huh. for Big Finish. And the covers, I don't know if you've noticed, some of the new Big Finish covers that are coming out have sort of a watercolor effect on the hmm. artwork on several different ranges. So I don't know if that's a new thing they're doing or, or what. It sounds like an interesting collection of, of components there. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to get my head around Emancipation of the Daleks, Voting Daleks. <laughs> um, I, I, I almost wonder if it goes back to Evil of the Daleks and the human factor. But uh, that sounds interesting. So it's always nice to see new ranges coming out of Big Finish. Mm -hmm. No, most of what I've been seeing in terms of news has to do with the tidbits that we're hearing about the Easter special. So, um, yeah, we've had trailer. We've had uh, some articles. The DWM, of course, had an article and little bits and pieces here on the Internet. Comments from cast. So mostly that's what I've seen. So as, as Michelle was just saying, m m most of the news we've been seeing particularly in the last few days, has been about the upcoming Legend of the Sea Devils. Sea Devil. You're coming straight for us. That's impossible. Madam Ching! Paraquid! Where's the crew? That'll be us. We don't stand a chance. So we've all had a chance to read the DWM uh, preview. And we've seen the new trailer that dropped literally just in the last day or so. And just to be clear to everyone, this is going to be a spoiler-free preview, mostly because we have no spoilers. We don't know anything <laughs> that anybody else knows. We have no inside track here. But we're not going to spoil anything that's not out there in the public domains. Guys, what do you think of what we've been seeing so far? I'm really excited about this. I read a bit about it. We, we uh, had a peek at the new DWM magazine. 
And there's an article there with Crystal Yu who's going to play Madame Ching. I didn't know Madame Ching was a real person until I read this article. Same here. Yeah. And she was more powerful than Blackbeard, it says. And that uh, Crystal Yu was actually reading all about her before she was even offered the part. So I think she'll be really great. But it, it looks really exciting. And um, we saw that trailer and there's a massive sea creature. Oh, dear. What is it? The Merka. Do you think that could be the Merka? <laughs> <laughs> the Merka looking proper this time? If it's not the Merka, it's the production team playing with the Willis fans making us think it's the Merka. Right. <laughs> I would love to see the Merka done well. <laughs> I think that visually this thing looks like it's going to be just lovely. The, the costumes and the sets and the pirate ship just look beautiful. Uh, and like Brent, I'm intrigued by the story and intrigued to learn a little bit more about, about history uh, and the pirate queen. Uh, I enjoyed also in DWM, the writer talked a little bit about you know the research that she had done. I also enjoyed reading in DWM, the author, Ella Rode, talking about uh, how she was picked to, to be the writer and also how she had done the research um, for the Pirate Queen, which, which which sounds wonderful. I found it interesting because we we talked a little bit with the Village of the Angels and, and speculated about how much input the, the writer had because it's co-written again with Chris Chibnall. Uh, and she said that she did the first three drafts and then he took the final swipe at it, which could be, you know, a minimal swipe or a major rewrite. Um, we can't be quite certain, but it does sound like like she had a significant part in crafting the story for that. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it. A writer we have not seen on Doctor Who before. That'll be fun. Yeah, it looks like it's going to definitely bu- buckle a lot of swashes. And yeah. <laughs> it looks like a big, fun, action-filled piece. Interesting, I, I, I read that originally the story wasn't going to have the Sea Devils at all. It was just going to be a pirate story uh, and something that apparently they, they almost put into flux. And then about halfway through decided, hey, this would be a great time to bring the Sea Devils back. And of course, Chibnall wrote hungry earth and brought the silurians back mm-hmm. back in the matt smith era so he's got a bit of form for this but what i particularly like from what i've seen in the trailers is that they seem to have kept the design of the sea devils mm-hmm. very close to the original in fact from what i understand they actually used the original head cast mm-hmm. to make the i mean obviously they've updated it the te- you can see the technology is much better but it looks basically the same yeah. whereas you think of the silurians they 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 could have been a different alien species altogether when they came back. And I agree. I, I love that. I think I think they look wonderful, and I like that they stick so close to the first design, which was a pretty doggone good design. Funnily enough, from uh, I mean, we'll get to the original Sea Devil story shortly, but uh, I also watched Warriors of the Deep this weekend, just to sort of thought. Oh, over and above, or or under and beneath, or <laughs> it was you know, <laughs> is that the Merca? I better go watch the original Merca. This this is the pains I put myself through for this podcast. Oh. So, um, and one of the things that really jumped out at me was just how static and slow and immobile the sea devils were in warriors of the deep they shuffled along they barely moved complete contrast to to the original sea devils and i think it's nice that these the ones they've got for this look to be much closer to the originals than the ones in warriors of the deep were i I think the warriors of the deep ones went off base more than these ones have done well i get the feeling that these ones are going to sword fight so they must be more agile than <laughs> than Warriors of the Deep. I have to say, though, I am a fan of Warriors of the Deep. I actually really like that story and would would not 
find it at all onerous to go back and rewatch it uh, at the drop of a hat. But I did not go back and rewatch it for this. There's a great story in there trying to get out, but the production values are somewhat wanting in places. True. There should have been another way. (laughs) (laughs) But this looks very action-packed, looks very fun-filled. I get the impression that this might be a little on the lightweight, fun fluff side, rather than being, you know, big portentous, you know, ongoing plot and foretelling what's going to happen. I'm sure we'll get a little bit of that. You're always going to get a little bit of that. But I don't think this is going to be some big, arky, soap opera type story. I think it's going to be action. Right. The only thing that I think will get developed a little more in here is the relationship between Yaz and the Doctor. And Mandip Gill has said that there's quite a bit of heart to this episode, that there, there's a, a heavy dose of heart. So I'm kind of curious to see how that plays out. Um, but I, I think that may be really the only way it dips into ongoing continuity. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that uh, as long as they don't just sort of in the middle of a, a frantic chase when everything's really critical, just stop and have a quick heart to heart on the side <laughs> of the ship before they carry on. Yeah. Well, they might. We'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what we've got to look forward to in a few weeks' time with the new outing of the Sea Devils. But uh, we thought it would be a great time for us to go back into the 70s to the John Pertwee era, and take a look at their original outing. This is our planet. My people ruled the Earth when man was only an age. Your people went into hibernation and abandoned Earth to its fate. Our astronomers predicted that a great catastrophe would end all life on the face of the Earth. But the catastrophe that you predicted never happened. And the apes that you left behind on the surface to die became man. You know our history. Yes. Yes, I've encountered your people before. That is why I want to prevent a conflict that can only end in your destruction. So, six-parter, season nine. What did you think, guys? Yeah, I really loved it. It had been a while since I had watched it. I remember liking it when I first watched it. Um, This time I watched the first two episodes at once and then the others one day at a time. Uh, And it is a great story, even down to obviously having beautiful days for filming out there on the ocean and the island and the sea fort. And I just love, I love the story. I love the sea devils. I love the interaction between the doctor and the master. Um, I love the way they make use of uh, the Royal Navy uh, and kind of feature that in here. It works really well and, and feels very much of the time, but in a, in a delightful way. How about you guys? I love this story. Uh, and I'd seen it recently, too, so it was great to see it again. I've, I've always liked it. There's some really good scenes in there, like uh, the fencing at the end of episode two. Uh, the scene where the, the guard takes the hand, the doctor's handcuffs off and he says, oh, how very kind of you, and then puts them behind his back. So how very unkind of you. <laughs> <laughs> um, you have Captain Hart here who was really good, but no Brigadier. I really wish the Brigadier had been in this one so they could revisit the whole Silurian thing that had happened uh, a couple of years before. I, I think it's interesting that they've got the Navy here standing in for unit because... In many ways, this is a classic unit story. Yeah, but there's no unit, um, and it's kind of kind of odd actually that it's almost a quintessential Pertwee era story, but also in so many ways is not like a Pertwee era story. So you've got no units, you've got the Royal Navy in there, although there's the Master who is a, a frequent uh, antagonist for the the Third Doctor. He starts off in in prison, and there's none of the usual 
who is he and where's he hiding and what's his disguise shenanigans. So it's kind of very familiar, but also quite atypical for the for the era. And it was really cool that um, I, I saw one of the behind the scenes with Barry Letts talking about they just asked the Royal Navy, hey, could you guys, do you want to help out? And they did. And it, it's uh, it's really noticeable in the last episode where normally you see about six sea devils at the same time on screen because that's <laughs> probably about all they had. But <laughs> uh, you see them in different places, so it gives the illusion that they're about 50 or so. But there's a scene where the Navy guys are coming out of the boat and they just keep pouring out. So mm. like so many guys, that was really cool. It looked very realistic. I like that. I mean, all, all through it, they had so much Navy hardware to play with, like the diving bell, which is on a real diving bell ship. Yeah, that was actually a Royal Naval ship, the last Royal Naval ship to have a, a mast and sails, apparently, and the hovercraft and the base and the guns and the the in, in, immense number of sailors, which were all basically given up for free by the Royal Navy because they saw the whole thing as a a recruiting opportunity yeah. for them. So you get a level of realism in the the kit. You know, there's no wobbly sets here because it actually is, you know, tons and tons of of steel and real guns. So it gives it a real solidity and realism. There's only two issues I have with this story. And, uh, I mean, I think it flows really nice. It's a great six-parter. I don't think it's uh, padded out in any way to me. Um, But the two things I... I have that are issues. Episode six, where the doctor and the master are testing the equipment that affects the sea devils. And it goes on for like three or four minutes before the master's like, oh no, turn it off. (laughs) Like, what? You didn't think about this three or four minutes ago? (laughs) Uh, And then the other part at the end where the master escapes by switching places with the ship's doctor. Does he always carry around a mask of himself in his pocket? I mean... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, apparently. Uh, yeah. Don't leave home without it. <laughs> well, he's probably got transcendental pockets like the doctor has. So it was interesting you were saying, Michelle, that you watched it in in pieces because I'd intended to do the same. I mean, when you go back and watch some of these six parters, it can be. I mean, that's a couple of hours of, of time to put in. So I'd intended to watch it in three sets of two to space it out, and I ended up just blitzing the whole thing because it, I was so drawn into the story and I was enjoying it so much that I just wanted to keep going. I ended up watching all six of them back to back and and just rolling through the whole story. Interesting watching it that way, that it's almost like two three-part stories. Because for the first three parts, you're mostly in the castle. It's mostly about the master and him being imprisoned and going back and forth to the naval base and all the intrigue about what's the master up to. You see a little bit of Sea Devil, but it's it's kind of incidental to, to what's really going on. And then... As of episode four, the whole thing flips and becomes all about the sea devils. And it's all about them being down at their base and them attacking and so on. So it almost plays out like two three-part stories. And that's maybe what keeps it fresh and gives it its pace throughout all six episodes. Yeah, we we so often complain about the pacing, even in good stories. And and yet this one really does seem to earn its six episodes. Um, I had to chuckle, Brent, you talked about the sword fight. I remember being particularly impressed with the sword fight. This time I had the disadvantage of just having watched Androids of Tara. And and there is a wonderful sword fight in Andrews of Tara uh, with Tom Baker in full scarf. Uh, and it goes on, I think, significantly longer than this sword fight. So, so this one was not as exciting in retrospect, um, but probably two of the best sword fights in Doctor Who history. I don't know how many there have been in those two episodes. The, the one in Androids of Tara had the advantage that the swords were also somewhat electrified. So that, And what was funny, because in Androids of Tara, whenever the swords touch, you get the kind of the <laughs> ping and the electric sound. Whereas here, as they were sword fighting, 
we had kind of the bizarre musical accompaniment that almost did the same thing. I I had to catch <laughs> myself and remind myself, these swords are not electrified. It's just the weird music. <laughs> yeah. The music is very weird in this. And, and I'm deliberately so they did it in an experimental piece, which yeah. it, I suppose it fits the time. And there were certain points when it was quirky and weird and suited the sort of odd, odd things that were happening under the sea. But at other times was mm-hmm. a bit, okay, that's not aged very well. I was going to say, have you ever put your ear to someone else's stomach and listened to all the noises that it makes? That's what the music sounds like in this. <laughs> I wouldn't even call it music. It's just noises. But yeah, it's very experimental. <laughs> the other thing I noticed in that sword fight is a continuity error because it's when the doctor ends up on the table uh, and then kind of rolls over and picks up the sandwich to eat the sandwich, which... I'm not sure I like. There's a lot of eating in this and a lot of close-up on people's mouths. After having dealt with Zoom for all these years and watching people eat when you don't want to, it's kind of creepy. But, but however, when the doctor first lands on the table, he knocks the sandwiches off completely. And then in the next shot, he picks up an unsquished sandwich that he didn't have to find on the floor. Um, so clearly the, <laughs> the sandwich plate was reset before they did that next take. Um, but yeah, a couple of th- And then, of course, the question of, why is there a rack of swords in a high security prison yeah. right outside? But I think that's been asked before and will never be answered. But it, it is still uh, a neat scene. <laughs> I mean, that's the kind of stuff I'm happy to hand wave away because yeah. it oh, gave yeah. us a fun sword fight. So yeah. Even though it's objectively ludicrous that you would leave deadly weapons right outside the prisoner's cell. <laughs> you know, one of the other wonderful things about this story is Joe Grant. She gets to be so good. She yeah. escapes. She helps the doctor escape. She's She's really never... Uh, flapped about anything. Um, she does need to learn to put the strap of her purse across her neck so that it's not always falling off her shoulder when she's fleeing uh, <laughs> and, and trying to be stealthy. But other than that, uh, no. But she was she was really super in this. She got to use all that es. How do you say it? Esca- escapa- es- Escapology. That's mm-hmm. the one. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting because watching this, I I I was really fascinated to see how they treated the women in the mm-hmm. show. And you, you know, you go back to the seventies and particularly, you know, it can be problematic at times. And to some extent that was part of the era, but I thought this one was almost schizophrenic in how it went about it, because yes, you've got Joe Grant in full secret agent mode, mm-hmm. beating up guards, knocking them out, running around, breaking into places, you know, being full on you know, sort of almost, you know, female James Bond mode, which was mm-hmm. incredible to see. Mm-hmm. But then, she goes into to the scenes in the the Navy office with the doctor and he's totally dismissive of her. The whole mm-hmm. taking the plate of sandwiches piece and being, and there was a number of times when he was incredibly patronising, but patronising to the point where you think, are they deliberately mocking him for being sexist, which is a very strange thing to do with your lead character. And a similar vibe is happening with the... Blythe? The sort of li- the lieutenant that was in yeah, the yeah. Third captain's officer, office as well. Third officer Blythe. Because at um, the time she was being treated incredibly badly, and you know, go get me this, go get me that. Equally, she was making some really sharp observations, and it was, you know, listen to her; she knows what she's talking about. Good morning, my dear, Captain Hart here. No, sir, he's at sea. Well, I suppose this is the right place for a sailor, eh? What's your name? Blythe, sir. Walker, Parliamentary Private Secretary. Any chance of any breakfast? I'll call the steward, sir. Excellent. And uh, who are you? Leading to Legravis Bowman, sir. Jolly good. 
Uh, nothing very elaborate, my dear. Just um, eggs, bacon, toast, coffee, or a little rough cut and marmalade, if they've got it. Uh, how long's he likely to be, Captain Hardaway? I don't know, sir. Well, now, I tell you what, you get him on your jolly old wireless and ask him to come over here at the double, will you? Send a signal to Captain Hart. Tell him that a Mr. Walker is here to see him. Parliamentary private secretary. Uh, aye, aye, sir. I'll call the steward. Ah, and get me the morning papers, will you? There's a good girl. If I may ask, sir, what is the purpose of your visit? Why, all those ships sinking. I've come down to clear it up for you. Ministers put me in full charge. And it was, I, I couldn't quite pin down where they were trying to go with this because it seemed to go back and forth. I, I do think you're right with the schizophrenia. That's a good observation. I think some of the stuff with the doctor, yeah, they were they were poking fun at it. You, you almost get the sense he may know what he's doing and maybe teasing Joe. You know, you, you, you could write a little bit of that as sort of their inside um, relationship that the two of them have, although it is still kind of odd. With the third officer, Blythe, um, who being a third officer, I would assume must have some role in the chain of command, that that was odd because she really was often the one sent out to get sandwiches and drinks and coffee and thing. And yet, obviously, she was a very capable person and was being shown as a very capable person. The one who was most egregious, though, it was, was um, Trenchard, is that his name? Mm-hmm. Who is the villain and who is creepy all along in the way he treats Joe and and Blythe, um, the way he reaches out and holds Joe's hand and, and touches Joe on the shoulder, just trust me, it was creepy. And I think, but I think it was deliberately so. I think the production recognized that, and it was because he was a villain. It was it was a part of his, um, you know, part of showing that he was not on the up and up. And again, the one that that particularly treats Blythe poorly is that guy from the the ministry. Oh, he kept the parliamentary undersecretary. Yeah, yes. the parliamentary undersecretary who was being portrayed as a buffoon and obnoxious right from the get-go. Um, you get the feeling that, um, now see the commander of the of the base that I can't remember his name, Hart? Captain Hart. Commander yeah. Hart? Captain Hart. Um, probably was a little more respectful of his team. <laughs> so yeah, you're right though. It, it, it's, a little, it's a little weird, but I, I do love that, that Joe gets to shine so much in this. If it had just been Trenchard and the guy from the ministry, I think it would actually have been a very straightforward, here's some powerful female characters, here's some idiotic men who are treating them badly. And I think you could have seen a very straight line there, which would have been quite bold, actually, for the, for the time. The fact that they brought the Doctor in on that side, I found mm. odd. And I'm, I'm not sure I buy the... they were del- He was knowing on it, because it didn't come over that way to me. And I just thought that was a strange direction to take things, to make your, your hero character to be... And and they were mocking him. I mean, the way it was staged, I felt that they were actually mocking his attitudes. And, you know, the attitudes should be mocked, but, again, it didn't seem to sit well with the Doctor. Well, the production team, like I said, and I don't know if that is the director or the writer, um, did seem to have this kind of strange obsession with people eating. <laughs> <laughs> we, we saw more breakfasts and stuff brought in in this than we ever have, I think. <laughs> yeah, it did happen a lot, especially with the, 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 the secretary. But then I think that was deliberate because yeah. it gave such that, that counterpoint between him stuffing his face while he you know blithely ordered people to get killed and nuclear attacks and all sorts and just showed what a complete monster he was. He was probably the biggest monster in the entire show. Mm. Oh, pass me the sugar, my dear, will you? My submarine is missing in that area. There's a chance that some of the crew may still be alive. And what about the doctor? He may still be alive down there too. Yes. Well, this is war, my dear, and war calls for sacrifice. 
Any chance of any more toast, my dear? Yes, sir. Now, I've had a look at that unit file about the creatures that your friend the doctor encountered in those caves. And do you know what happened? Brigadier Lethbridge Stewart blew the whole lot up. Maybe, but I bet he didn't do it by risking the lives of his own men. Well, that's as maybe, but our line is quite clear. Immediate retaliation with everything that we've got. I'm sorry, sir, I don't agree. Your opinion is quite immaterial, Captain Hart. The order's already been given. Ships are converging on this area from ports all over England. You're throwing away the lives of the men in that submarine, sir. And you'll probably kill the doctor. Look, do you realize that that's murder? Murder? War over it, my dear. Well, no, that girl with my toast. Yeah, that was on that was oh, on yeah. purpose because of the close up of his mm-hmm. mouth. Yeah. Well, and you make a good point, um, Ian, about him being the biggest monster in the whole show because the Sea Devils, you have you have a certain amount of sympathy for them. Again, there's this really interesting ethical dilemma in their story of they were here first, and and what do you make of they were here first? And uh, the doctor, you know, I love the way he continues to try and broker peace. Um, but gets foiled at every step because he's got people like the master working against him and discrediting what he's trying to do in, in all honesty. Um, so yeah, that continuing plot line is interesting. and I'm sure will be interesting in legend of the sea devils coming up. So what, what I loved about the sea devils here, and I mentioned earlier on when we were talking about legend is how mobile they were because so, so many of those men in a suit aliens from that era kind of wobble along very, very slowly and it's very hard to see them as an actual threat. These guys were running around, leaping over barbed wire, jumping off of things. You know, they actually look like a credible species that could come and fight you. Yeah, one guy, one did a flip. <laughs> That's right, yeah. off the building. Yeah, yeah, straight off the building. I do wonder, because, you know, we see the pathos of the Doctor trying to make peace and it failing. If we hadn't, if we didn't know that was what was going on because we'd seen the Salarians before, would you have picked it up from this story? Because... It was over and done really fast. You know, he, he arrives, he makes a story that they say maybe, and then someone bombs them, and then it's war. And the whole thing is kind of started and finished in about 10 minutes flat. And I almost got the feeling they were shortcutting that because they're relying on the audience knowing about the, 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 the moral dilemma here because we've already played it out a couple of seasons earlier. That's a hard one to answer because... We do know about the moral dilemma. Mm. Now, we have the advantage of being able to go back and watch them whenever we want, and that might not have been true for the audience that first saw this. But um, hasn't this one always been pretty well-received, I think? Um, I'll bet it wasn't a big problem. I'm not sure how much the audience of the day would have got too hung up on the moral dilemmas anyway. But, uh, you know, if you talk about the Sea Devils and the Silurians, the thing that everyone remembers is that moral dilemma. And actually, I think it's a much smaller part of this story than it was the Silurians before it. And to some extent, even Warriors of the Deep afterwards, um, when, when Peter Davidson really sort of, uh, you know, there should have been another way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which I think is a great line. <laughs> yeah. It was mentioned in passing a few times, but they didn't really dwell on it a whole lot. Well, I want to throw out a little tidbit if folks are looking for more opportunities to at least enjoy the setting. Um, there is a Torchwood in their monthly range, and this would have been probably a couple, three years ago at this point, there's a, a play called Fortitude written by James Goss that is set on a sea fort, just like the one shown in the Sea Devils. So if you found that that you know metal installation out there in the sea fascinating, you can you can go get that big finish play and and hear another whole play set with this is with uh, 
Queen Victoria in Queen the Queen Victoria era, and she's one of the main characters in this play, but really good torchword play. And at the end of it, in the extras, James Goss actually did some research for it by going out and staying for a couple of days on one of those sea forts that's been converted into a hotel. And you get to hear him making recordings all up and down and around in the in the sea fort, um, describing what he's seeing and what they're like. So I highly recommend that. Um, it just tied in really well with, with having just watched The Sea Devils. Cool. Yeah. Well, we, we all enjoyed The Sea Devils. And you're right, I think it has a great reputation. Uh, I've not encountered anyone that really doesn't like the story. And I think it makes a great leaping off point for what we hope will be a great Easter special in a few weeks' time. Here, here. Yep. How do you say that in a nautical way? <laughs> Ahoy! Aye, aye. Aye, aye, Captain. <laughs> aye, that's it. Aye, aye, Captain. <laughs> Having looked back on our Sea Devil past, we're now waiting for... Uh, it's only a couple of weeks from now when we'll see the new one. And I'm sure we'll be back in the camper van to hopefully review what is going to be a standout episode in, in the, the twilight era of Chris Chibnall. So. <laughs> With or without swords drawn. <laughs> but there will be no there will be no sandwich eating in the camper van during recording. No. No, definitely not. <laughs> Although someone serves me up a full English, I might possibly be tempted. <laughs> Thanks, Brent and Michelle, for, for going through the Sea Devils with me. And we'll, we'll be back again soon to review Legend of the Sea Devils. Talk to you all later. Bye-bye. See you next time. That was the Doctor Who Podcast, which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it in to feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. Thank you for listening. Take care.